Farzi, we normally like to uh, talk about our trips on the road on this podcast from time to time, but it was a short road trip for us this weekend just down to London. But I do have to say a giant thank you to Mark and Dale Hunter. Uh, okay. They didn't have the air conditioning on in the press box, so it was actually bearable. <laughs> and uh, I just want to say thank you for that because nice. I wore long johns and an undershirt, probably didn't need them, but was quite comfortable. So I appreciate it. Maybe that's why you were comfortable because you dressed appropriately. Bars always liked to say there's no such thing as bad weather, only inappropriate clothing. Fair, but I can't be expected to wear a parka while broadcasting games. So it was, it was, I've worn the long johns and undershirt to London. Well, I try to remember every game, but it was comfortable up there. So I just wanted to say thank you because normally it's freezing cold right on par with Guelph. I told the story on Twitter when we were at that road game on Saturday at Budweiser Gardens. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL, by the way. Popper is at under. And you can reach us on this podcast, farwellandpope at gmail.com. Shoot us a note anytime with constructive criticism, deconstructive criticism, guest ideas, whatever you want. But when I shared the story on social media, I think it was misinterpreted a little bit. London and Kitchener on the ice and I've been known to engage here and there with a certain member of the London media who quite frankly owes his career to the entire region of Waterloo and probably City News 570 but that's a whole other conversation so I think it gets misinterpreted sometimes I just want to be clear on the story my very first trip to London uh, I couldn't find the press box that's a me thing like I was and I in fairness And the reason I shared the story on social media is because I wanted you to see the picture of how it really blends into the concourse. I literally, that time I couldn't find it, walked past it multiple times, not realizing it was right there behind those doors with the white screens on them. Anyway, a London fan chimed in and says, you know, all your hate of all things London. I don't think you understood the story. You you froze there. What do you say? Your hate of all things London? All the, yeah, it's going a little too far. I'm like, I don't think you quite understood the story it was just trying to remember our good friend don cameron a little bit and talk about what an idiot i am but let's just put it on the record it's my favorite place to broadcast from they got like it's everything you need it's right over center ice plenty of space to do your work all the hookups for the doodads that you need if i had a complaint it's what you talked about already so it's a it's a wee bit chilly in there and yes i know it's a hockey rink but we're inside, damn it. Let's make it a little bit more comfortable. It's a beautiful spot to broadcast games. As you mentioned, you have your own table, your own little private area. It's nice. It's big. You get a turn around over your right shoulder and you get a look at the video replay booth and you can see the television broadcast. There's you're a perfect eyesight. I, I love the broadcast position. It's the only good part about going to London. So just think, well, the good part about going to London later in the season might be watching Mason McTavish play for the night. What? You you think so? Massive news with the Anaheim Ducks sending Mason McTavish back to the Peterborough Peets. Third overall selection. And I talked about it on our broadcast, Farzi, but Mason McTavish was injured early in the season, gets sent down to the American League for a handful of games. I wonder if Mason McTavish isn't injured early in the season, if he doesn't play his first year contract with the Ducks. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a big ask, but there's no doubt that he's got the talent to do it. So could be. Focusing on the Peterborough Peets and the Ontario Hockey League. What a win this is for the league generally, because fans get to see him again at this level at a reasonable price. I will always remember Brampton. Yes, I'm going back to Brampton, but talking about that when Matt Duchesne was there. And 
you know, I was speaking, I, I did an interview actually with the then president of the Brampton Battalion. He said, fans can come and see Matt Duchesne and Cody Hodgson for $15 this year, or they can pay 200 to go see him at whatever they were calling Maple Leaf Gardens at the time, you know, in Toronto, either way, you know what I mean? Scotiabank Arena. So it's a, it's a huge win for the league. As far as I'm concerned to see that kind of talent. Well, on our broadcasts this weekend, Mike Oak, the general manager there in Peterborough, has himself a shiny new toy, and he can just dangle it in front of 19 other teams and say, who wants my shiny new toy? This is the starting price, because obviously it's unlikely McTavish will finish the season in Peterborough. We talk about that price thing a lot when it comes to the OHL, and especially when McDavid was in the league, and now Shane Wright, too, and Mason McTavish. Did it work in Brampton, though? Did that sales pitch work? No, it didn't. <laughs> it was a good sales pitch, though. It doesn't change the nope. pitch. <laughs> it just didn't work in Brampton. It just fell on deaf ears. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you see something like that happen and you look at the Peterborough Peets and what they were building before this COVID stuff came down, you automatically think that he will be dangling that nice little shiny toy out in front of 19 other OHL teams. But the way Peterborough is going right now, Emmett Sproul on a tear since coming over from Erie. They got Tucker Robertson leading the league right now. I don't know if they do ship off their shiny toy in Mason McTavish now. Do you you look at that Eastern Conference? There's a few teams near the top like Hamilton, North Bay. But do you take it and just say, you know what? We just got the best player in the league back. Maybe we hang tight and see what we have here. Yeah, I I, I doubt that's the case. I think they will hang tight until closer to the trade deadline. I don't think this is going to be a deal that happens imminently by any stretch, but don't forget that Peterborough was one of those teams that loaded up back in the season that got canceled a couple of years ago. So they have a real opportunity here to put some assets back in the cupboard. And it's, you know, Mason McTavish we're talking about here. He will not go inexpensively. So you hang on to him, you, you ride him out for a bit and let the fans in Peterborough see him a bit more, put a few more bums and a few more seats for a few more games and then move him as the trade deadline approaches and likely move him to the West. I don't think you'll move him to an Eastern conference opponent and reap whatever you can out of him, and then use that to build on for the years ahead. Yeah, you're probably right. Considering there's right now at the quarter point sitting outside of a playoff spot and are leading the league in goals against. So they're probably not, unless they're planning on beating team 7-6. I'm glad you brought up the quarter point because you and I have had the long-standing rule that we don't talk about standings in this league until we're at least here at the quarter point. And you know, Popper, granted, we don't get to see the East, so it's a little bit more difficult to gauge. But I'm looking around this Western Conference, and I'm watching Sarnia beat London twice, Last week, I'm watching the Saginaw Spirit score six unanswered goals coming from behind in a win over Kitchener. I'm watching the Flint Firebirds with a winning record right now as we record this podcast. I just don't know what's going on. I don't know that the quarter point is enough to really put your finger on who is what in this league. And I'll even add London into that. A 9-0 and start, but a bunch of one-goal games and then back-to-back losses to Sarnia. Are the London Knights really the London Knights of 2019? I don't know. For, for me, I look at the Western Conference and I just keep staring at the Guelph Storm. No kidding. Like, I thought they would be bad this year. 10 wins in 18 games, leading the West in goals, or second in the West in goals four. Um, 
I'm blown away. They, I really thought they'd go to their backup, but if Owen Bennett continues to play like he's been playing and he can take that number one job, is Guelph all of a sudden a team that people have to circle and people watch down the line? I, I, they're blowing me away right now. Yeah, I, I'd be, I'd be circling them. I'd be, you know, watching very carefully. And I think you can uh, thank Sasha Pastajov for the Lions' share of that eighteen goals and. 18 games, including the OT winner this past weekend. And now there's conversation sticking kind of with the Mason McTavish theme here. There's conversation that Guelph should move past the Joff before the end of this year. And also again, put more assets in the cupboard because Guelph looks like it's going to be a good team for the next couple of years after this one and past the Joff because of eligibility may find himself in the American hockey league next year. I think that's because he's U S born, right? I think that's it's the way because it works. he was anyway. drafted. He was drafted out of the U S uh, right. de- development program. That's right. So yeah. I mean, I, I personally would say no to that. I would allow if, if things continue on this trajectory for the Guelph storm, I'd, I'd ride the hot hand. I'd let this team go as far as it can this year and have a lot of fun doing it and then have that experience in the bank for the next couple of years. But I guess Tasha Pastajov is pretty damn shiny right now. He is. And both Pastajov and Mason McTavish property of the Anaheim Ducks. Those are two of the best goal scorers in this Ontario hockey league. And if you're Anaheim, you're just sitting there. No wonder you sent McTavish back. I'll just wait, let these two players develop, get two massive offensive uh, injections into our lineup in the next couple of years. I wonder if Anaheim is uh, nudging, Peterborough and talking to George Burnett and saying, so if you are going to move past a job, where would you want him to go? Because we kind of want them to play together. <laughs> could you, I don't know. It's just so. Yes, it, I could imagine. Super teams are a real thing in this league in the last handful of years. So I can completely imagine someone going out and getting both of them. Yes. Well, I, I'm starting to wonder though, too, what prices are going to look like this year. Again, just because of the entirely lost season, the teams that had built up for that run in 1920 that got stopped short by COVID. And then if they had built up, they were probably expecting like Peterborough would have been to move some assets in 2020, 2021 to restock and reset for this year. And of course, those assets might have graduated out of the league now before they even had a chance to move them to restock their draft cover and stuff. So I'm looking around at deals that have already happened. Cameron Saprika goes to Guelph from Sarnia for draft picks. Uh, Mac Guzda, he's going to be the goaltending savior for the Barry Colts, I guess, but going for draft picks from Owen Sound to Barry. Third and a fifth. Yeah. Prices have been obviously modest. And look, don't make any mistakes. Saprika, and Gusta are not not trying to paint that picture, but I just I think teams are going to be a little more tentative because I, I don't know if they even know who or what they've got right now. I can I can tell you teams probably don't know what they have right now. Um, the more and more we see it, the more and more we with this double cohort rookies coming into the league. We've talked about it numerous times early on in the season, but still. Like we broadcast Ranger games. Do we know what Andrew LeBlanc is going to be right now? First over first round selection by Kitchener two years ago. So technically in his sophomore age, but no goals yet. Do you know what he's going to be? I don't think you do quite yet. It's always that after Christmas time that when kids come back to the league after going home, that you really get an understanding. And as these kids, some of them go off to U17s and stuff like that, 
I remember Shane Wright last year got off to a little or two years ago, got off to a bit of a cold start, goes off to the U 17s, dominates, comes back and look out. So I think after these U 17s and stuff, you get a better idea as to what these players are capable of and after Christmas. But yeah, I don't think a lot of teams are really comfortable in what they're doing quite yet because they're not sure what they have. You mentioned Barry going out and getting that overage. They needed it. Barry was talked about before the season. Everyone was crowning them as the East champions and they just haven't been able to put it together. Matt Guzda certainly helps. And when you can get them for a third and a fifth, I mean, that's a pretty fair deal for an overage goalie, I think. Yeah, it seems right to me. And then you look at that Eastern Conference because, yes, people were crowning the Barry Colts even as the season began. And Marty Williamson, who's, of course, installed there now as the head coach and GM, has never been shy about making deals, that's for sure. But clearly, Barry wants to stay on that trajectory. I look at the top of the conference, though, and I see the North Bay Battalion. And I've seen the North Bay Battalion there since basically the beginning. No disrespect intended to Ryan Ulan, but I did not see it going this way for the North Bay Battalion. Will it stay? I don't know. The Hamilton Bulldogs are up there right now. And that's a team that won an OHL championship in 2018. So try to make sense of it because I, I can't, but I'm certainly yet uh, not, I'm not buying stock in the Eastern Conference yet. I'm sorry to the Eastern Conference. I'm just not buying the stock yet. I figured North Bay would be good. I didn't think they'd be this good quite yet, but they're getting their production up front. They got a good defensive core and Joe Verbetic between the pipes seems to be doing well. Adam Dennis has put together quite the roster up there in a young team. I think they're even be good next year too. Yeah, I, I think they probably will be, which makes me just think right now they might be peaking a little bit too soon, but who knows? Who knows in this, this post-COVID OHL campaign and speaking of which I was going to say no I was just going to say you mentioned COVID first outbreak that we've heard of and no one's really talking about it why that's what I was going to say did did we really hear about it I think we only heard about it because it impacted a team that was coming to play in Kitchener on the weekend and we're like hang on a second where's Nick Wong where's Davis T-Bone Cod can we just stop calling him Davis (laughs) sure Okay. Where's T-Bone? We all, and you don't even have to put the last name in there. Yeah, Just say T-Bone, T-Bone, right? Where's T-Bone? Where's Nick Wong? Ian Phillips didn't jump off the page, but he wasn't there. And it turns out they uh, did not meet COVID protocol and couldn't make the trip north of the border with the Saginaw Spirit last weekend. And there was nary a peep from the Ontario Hockey League. And it just it makes you ask the question, what the protocols look like? How many players would have to fail their tests, which because we know that the teams have to pass the test, the PCR test before going across the border both ways. So if you have three that, you know, the test is either inconclusive or positive, I don't know what the deal is, but how many must fail or not pass, whatever, however we want to describe that, but how many of those players must not pass the test for there to be an outbreak declared? Why, why would the rest of the players who are clearly close contacts of those that didn't make the trip get on the ice with another 20 junior hockey players? And now does that team have to go through a testing protocol? I, I have no idea, but I, I think it's a little too quiet from the league. I don't know if they were prepared for this or they had any protocols in place, but. Or maybe it was as Farwell freezes up here. Maybe it was along the same lines as the suspensions and everything where the league just maybe doesn't want to put it out there that they're having this COVID outbreak. I mean, I thought they handled it fine with 
you know, you have to pass these PCR tests before you come over. And the people who didn't, didn't come with the team. So everyone who did travel tested negative, or at least it came back inconclusive. One or the other, we, we don't know the full story yet. Um, but I thought they handled it well. I heard that the Rangers didn't find out until about a couple hours before Saginaw got there. So they're kind of thrown off and they like, like does the does game the get game canceled, canceled then? then? No one seems to really know what the protocol was. And that was the first instance. And you and I found out cause we talking to their broadcasters, like, Hey, where are these guys COVID protocol? They didn't make the trip over the border. We put it out on Twitter. And like, I thought at least with Twitter or something, people would, you know, latch onto it or it would get a little more traction, but there was no traction at all. And to me, I was like, this is the first case where, and I guess it's hard to say, cause we don't know what happened to those tests. We don't know if they came back inconclusive or po- false positive, or we don't know what they came back as. Cause no one said anything. So where's the transparency again? Maybe, maybe we just overestimate the, uh, the influence of our various Twitter accounts for this hockey league. Maybe that's it. Well, I, still, I, I still bring into question the transparency. Like, is this not something that you come out with? But again, I mentioned it earlier. Maybe it's a, like the suspensions thing where they just don't want to talk about stuff that could be viewed as negative. But to me, the protocols they have in place worked. It should be something that you should be celebrating. We put in this protocol and it kept three people who may be ill from crossing the border. Is that not the positive spin on it? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I would love to know. And I, it makes... It makes me worry a little bit that the league was ill-prepared. I, I have a hard time believing that. But again, if there's nothing, and, and even those who came across with the Saginaw Spirit couldn't tell us what they were required to do. Like even they, there's got to be some kind of documentation on this. Here's what happens when. But maybe they were just hoping it wouldn't happen at all. Um, who knows? Regardless, we haven't heard anything since, so. Yeah, which I think is a good thing, right? Yeah. No news well, is good I, news. In this I case. don't know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mentioned those uh, those Twitter feeds, which may or may not have influence at underscore Chris Pope at Farwell underscore OHL. But really, the social media platform you want to find us on is YouTube. OHL Stories on YouTube has all of this stuff. All of these podcasts, the video version of them is there. Uh, we just got another great coffee review at Locomotive Express. It was called in London on the weekend, Popey. Locomotive espresso. Pardon me. Of course it was espresso. It's a coffee yeah, review. Exactly. Yeah. I just hold the camera and I didn't even hold the camera this time, but those uh, coffee reviews get posted on there. Uh, I post a weekly rant called Fridays with Farwell. And I warned you this past week that the London Knights are living rent free inside your head. Uh, you name it. Stuff goes up on that OHL stories, YouTube page. So find it, subscribe to it and don't. Including every podcast we do which means this one as well. Uh, our guest this week, of course, synonymous with the Ottawa 67s, one of, if not the greatest 67 ever, arguably. Most goals in franchise history, most points in franchise history. Went on to play 400-plus games in the National League with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Went on to play 400-plus games uh, overseas, scoring 300 and... I have it here. 340 <laughs> goals in 450 games in Germany and uh, not bad for a guy who was recruited because they wanted his brother David Uh, ladies and gentlemen Peter Lee 81 goals I I guess Peter first off I I wonder how a how a kid from Chester England winds up in the nation's capital of Canada 
playing hockey for the 67s. How did that come about? Yeah, it's kind of uh, an interest. My father actually played uh, soccer here. He played for the national team in, in England. Uh, at the time, obviously, it was more amateur than professional. And uh, he happened to be a teacher at the time with my mother. And uh, after his soccer kind of teaching combination career, he got the opportunity to come to Canada with his three boys and, uh, and teach over in Canada. So we had a couple of stops in between. We were out in Brandon for a year. Then we were in uh, a place called Arvida, which is near Shkudami in Quebec. I was there till I was 12 and then uh, basically moved to Ottawa. Your dad, obviously, soccer star, as you mentioned. Where did your love from hockey come from, or was it just being in Canada? Well, being in Arvida, there was no grass, so uh, you either put <laughs> skates on, and uh, I don't know if I would have looked a little bit funny running around with soccer shoes when there's only snow on the ground. <laughs> well, I don't want to but jump my dad to... Was, uh, my dad was a phys ed teacher, and you know his whole thing with, with sports wasn't about being a professional or anything for him. What really interested him is he saw the energy, the three boys we all had. And uh, for him, it was more important, even at the time when I got drafted, uh, he wasn't so interested in agents. For him, it was uh, sport was uh, a vehicle where, you know, I didn't get into any trouble where I was, you know, after school, I was always occupied. I was either playing baseball, football, uh, ice hockey or or anything kind of sport that we could do. And my father was really happy and he figured he got me to 2021 and all the wires weren't crossed that uh, hopefully I'd start making all the right decisions. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you know, in, in small town Quebec and your skating is basically all you can do. How does it feel to have the Montreal Canadians of all teams call your name in the first round of the NHL draft? It was kind of, uh, it was kind of interesting because when we lived in Arvada, obviously, we tended to uh, Montreal more than uh, than Toronto. I know it's either one or the other. But see, in Ottawa, you're you know either Toronto, obviously a Senators first. But uh, uh, at the time, at my age, you were either Toronto or Montreal because I, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> grew up in Chicoutimi. Of course, I watched all the the great Montreal teams, and and uh, it was kind of ironic that I actually got drafted there and the opportunity. Uh, to join such a great organization. So you moved just outside of Ottawa and you and your brother, David recruited to the 67s. How was that recruitment? Bill Long actually said he'd never do it again. It was so cold there, but Bill Long, <laughs> uh, one of the original coaches in, in, uh, by the Ottawa 67s, obviously was, was with the London Knights also, but he came to scout a game for my brother. And I was kind of the add-in package because uh, my dad had said, you know, he's got a younger brother. And they said, well, they got a, you know, they have a junior B and a whole minor system. So the recruiting was mainly for my brother, David, who was a very good, you know, hockey player. Unfortunately, you know, got drafted by Minnesota, but ended up with a knee injury and pretty well had to end his career a little early. But uh, the original uh, was my brother, David, who was recruited to Ottawa. It's hard to imagine the guy who was the afterthought in the deal, Peter, being the guy that still leads the Ottawa 67s franchise in total points for a career. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky to have my brother, you know. Uh, I, we actually played in junior together. And, uh, you know, he was, he was even in Quebec when we were, when we lived in Arvada, he was recruited by the, the junior Habs. I actually hooked on when he went to the junior Habs. I went to, with him and I was kind of on his shoulder 
uh, all the way. And, uh, you know, I was lucky to have a brother that was, uh, that was like, uh, you know, a hero to me and, uh, I could never catch him at points, never catch him in goals. And, uh, I always wanted to catch him. So, you know, I guess that kind of drove me to, you know, hopefully get past him, but, uh, yeah, I was lucky to have a brother like my brother, David. Yeah, and then you get 81 goals, and he's calling you going, whoa, slow down, youngster, slow down. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, in that time, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun and, uh, yeah, some great memories. When you went to Ottawa, as you mentioned, you had Bill Long first, and then there was a coach for two years in between, but then in, in comes – <clears throat> Yes, that's right. Thank you. Then comes in Brian Kilray. What was it like your first meeting with the legend that is killer? I mean, you know, there's a, you know, they always say uh, Brian was a little hard, but uh, you know, his passion is not just for the game. It's the passion for the players. And I think that's uh, uh, says it all. Like he, he worries, he wants to push everybody to be the best they can. Uh, uh, and I kind of was in the, in the penalty box a little bit too much of my, my, when Leo Bueva obviously and Bill Long, you know, they, to get into the lineup, you know, you had to try to do anything and everything to get into the lineup. And with Leo, Webant was, you know, definitely intensity and compete level. And Brian was kind of the one that, uh, you know, instead of being in the penalty box, be nice to score goals. And uh, he kind of brought the best offense out of me. Your stats sure show that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like, there's so many coaches that preach, uh, preach defense first. And I think for Brian uh, – you know, it was offense, and it wasn't that he neglected defense. He just expected you not to cheat. He just expected you wanted to win. If you want to win, you got to play defense. So, you know, he concentrated a lot of his efforts on, uh, on uh, you know, the offensive play, and he expected you to play well defensively every night. That was a given for him. How did Brian treat you as a young man away from hockey? We know what he taught hockey-wise, but what was what was he like to you you know, to ensure that you're keeping curfew, things like that. Yeah, keeping curfew was kind of funny. Uh, you know, he used to invite us over on a Saturday night and his wonderful, lovely wife uh, uh, used to uh, make us popcorn. And uh, uh, we kind of watched the game to about quarter to 11. And he'd be, you know, saying good, you know, different things in the game to us about it. And we'd have, you know, some really good talks. And then about five minutes to 11, he'd say, hey, guys, Curfew's at 11, you know, and we're like, well, we're 15 minutes from home. You better not break curfew. So he was uh, on one side, you know, he was very, he pushed us, but he cared how we did in school. He wanted to know, you know, even girlfriends, you know, uh, uh, you know, had to make sure that off ice, everything was going well. And uh, uh, he just cared about you as a person, not just as a hockey player. Peter, we've alluded to it a couple of times, but that 81 goal season, like nowadays somebody scores 30 and we're like, well, he's a good goal scorer in this league. 40, you're like, oh, he's a really good score. 50, you're like, this guy's special. You know, we get a few 60s mixed in here. Brazil had it a couple of years ago to bring it, but 81 is unheard of. What was it like during that season for you? You know, we had some pretty good players on the team. I think we had Dougie Wilson on defense, uh, you know, you just have to stand in front of the net. If you tipped a couple, you got a few. I had a pretty good centerman that year in Larry Skinner. And uh, another, unfortunately, didn't get to play pro, but Jimmy Roberts, uh, uh, you know, it was a good line. We had a good team. And, you know, Killer, he likes to play offense. And, 
it was uh, it was fun. And you know, never really thought about it. It was you know until I got to Christmas. It was pretty easy, easy going. Not an easy, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, it wasn't. Didn't look like it was going to be an eighty-one. And then all of a sudden, things after Christmas really started to click, and uh, I got defensemen starting to play left wing against me, and it was <laughs> it was really fun, but it, uh, it was pretty exciting here. The record would stand the the number of goals you scored, two hundred thirteen, for more than thirty years until some guy named John Tavares came along. Was did it dawn on you at at the time, Peter, when you graduated out of the Ontario Hockey League with more than two hundred goals that it was a pretty special number that might be hard to catch. I never really thought of it uh, that way. I mean, uh, you know, you just, your whole, your whole focus is to get to the NHL and have those, those kind of records and everything. It's nice to have. I mean, it was kind of really, uh, really pretty exciting when John Tavares broke it. I mean, I can always say John Tavares broke my record. So, uh, you know, it's better than uh, a no name to break it. So it's a pretty big name that broke the record. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing you don't think about till, you know, later in your, in your career and after 20 or 25 years, but records are to be broken. What was it like when Tavares was inching closer to your record and then that game that he did break it for you? Well, it was kind of funny because the year before he broke it, uh, uh, we had, I, I was, uh, uh, general manager here in, in Berlin for the hockey club. And Pierre Paget was our, was coaching us at the time. And uh, uh, Pierre was kind of ahead of the game type of thinker. And a lot of the, the kids weren't getting the opportunity to go too early to the NHL. Obviously John Tavares had unbelievable skill. And Pierre came to me one day and said, uh, you know what? That John Tavares, he's just dominating junior. We should get him out for his last year. So we did give it a try. And I, I remember talking uh, to his agent. I said, the reason I'm calling is uh, I'd like to get John to come play over here so he doesn't break my record. <laughs> but no, we were trying to get him over here. But he was obviously, you know, pumped to play the under-20s and try to win a Memorial Cup. And But it was kind of an outside year by Pierre, who... You know, I really love to work with young young guys, and yeah, it was worth the effort. You mentioned earlier some of the teammates you had, and Doug Wilson and Larry Skinner, Jimmy Roberts. Uh, you also played Bobby with guys, Smith. Bobby. I was just going to bring. I was. You also played with a couple of guys named Denny Potvin and Bobby Smith. It's like an all star cast up there in Ottawa. Yeah, we had Wayne Merrick, who had a good career. And, by the Islanders, there was Ian Turnbull that joined us uh, in his last year. Yeah, there's some pretty good. I remember Bobby Smith. In fact, the year I got the 81, Bobby had just got to the, got a, uh, just made our team that year. He'd grown, you know, he was, I don't know, 5'10, 5'11 uh, in midget or before that. And then all of a sudden he was like 6'1, 6'2. And we actually tried him on the left wing and it was, it's amazing to see a kid and you, you notice the development in kids and how over one year makes a difference. I think he just trying to get control of the stick, just trying to be adjusted with all his growth. He had a, it wasn't an easy time for him his first year, uh, but a hardworking kid. And next year, I mean, you know, I think he had almost 200 points the next year. So coordination got back and turned into a great player. What was Denny Poppin like? Danny Putman was uh, the ultimate competitor. You know, he did, you know, offense and defense uh, 
was as important to him. You know, there wasn't one, wasn't just like he wanted to be an offensive player. He wanted to be that top all-rounded defender. And he was an unbelievable competitor and always wanted to win. And uh, it was good for me. I was like 15 years old, actually 14 years old when I started up with him. And uh, he was the perfect, uh, you know, someone to look up to and, and to see the career he had and how he, how he was in the NHL was going, you know, to my last year was, you know, I wanted to be there too. How much are you still in touch with the guys you played with all those decades ago? I mean, when you come to Ottawa, you see a bunch of the guys. It's, uh, you know, it's funny. You see them. Some of them have been over here. Some have, uh, uh, are still in Ottawa. I don't get back as much. I mean, after your playing career, you know, I used to get back as a player in the summer for two or three months. You'd see everybody. Then I got into coaching. So you maybe got a month and a half back home. And then I got in as the uh, CEO of the club. And uh, there you maybe had a week or two. It, you know, it's a 12 month job when you're, when you're a CEO, general manager or coach, it's not a, it's a long year. So I haven't, it's been hard to stay in touch with everybody. Well, you know, once you got into management, but uh, yeah, every once in a while you see the guys. With the 67s, Peter, it's obviously one of the most legendary franchises in the league. And you, when you leave, you're leading the team history in points and in goals still to this day. Does it ever sink in that you're, you know, the tops of Ottawa of all Ottawa 67s players? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm thankful I got the opportunity to play there. You know, like I said, my brother was the one who was recruited. Uh, you know, Bill Long was unbelievable to me, uh, giving me that opportunity. Uh, actually, I was, you know, I had it on my 15th birthday, 15th or 16th birthday. Uh, I got my first game in the Montreal Forum against the Junior Canadians. And I'd been in Junior B all year. I'd been at practice every day with the first team and you know, Bill finally gave me the opportunity to play. It was a tough start for a young kid, but uh, we got on a good run in the playoffs and uh, it was a lot of fun. And then you had someone like Leo Boivin who came along and then obviously Brian Curie. I mean, I was lucky to, you know, have good coaches and, and, and guys that, that helped, helped me along and made me a better player. So I have a lot of people to thank for, not just that, you know, I got the results, but I don't think I would have got the results without the work of those people and the way they coached and helped me. So, uh, you know, they're a big part of it as much as, as myself. How would you describe the game back then, Peter, and the way it was played? Like Chris was talking about the numbers we see today. And if somebody scores 40, like that's a really big number to put up in terms of goal scoring. You, you doubled that. And you mentioned Bobby Smith and 200 points. I mean, I, I know it's a completely different generation, but you were playing in it. What, what is it? How would you describe the game then that freewheeling? Well, like I think, that? yeah, I think the goalies, I mean, obviously over the years, uh, I mean, obviously even the players are now getting into it, but you know, you saw goalie coaches come into it and help, uh, help improve the goalie position. Uh, they were, you know, the, the equipment wasn't as big. Uh, they didn't go down on butterfly by every shot. Uh, it was kind of a, a different era for that. It was kind of a, not easy for the, for the goalies in, in, in those days, but, uh, yeah, you didn't have as much video. You didn't have as much, uh, you know, the preparation was harder for coaches. Uh, uh you know, there's a lot of technologies that changed the game. 
that uh, you know helped improve the performance of goalies, uh, helped the performance. And I think that, uh, yeah, it was kind of more fueling. There was less structure as there is today. I mean, you you know, even between periods, you can make adjustments. You're able to change your power play around. You're even in shifts, you can change things around. In those days, you know, you didn't even get, you know, you were lucky to to be able to see your the game before. You basically had to go with, you know, what the coach saw, and and hopefully he could improve what he saw from behind the bench. We had another uh, Ottawa sixty-seven great on our podcast just a couple of weeks ago, and Corey Locke, and he had a few stories about a couple of run-ins with Killer. I'm interested to know if early. Corey in his... Locke played for us. <laughs> oh, did he? Oh, did he? Uh, won a, he won a championship with us at the Ice Bear. Oh, there you go. Nice yeah, little sixty-seven connection. Um, there you go. I'm just interested to know if uh, a young killer had the same bite. Did you ever have any run-ins with killer in your time? You know, I mean, killer always had a bite and, and uh, he never meant, uh, and, and I learned this from day one. He had an unbelievable uh, gift of, of being hard, but funny. And, and uh, you know, I, I remember we had a young defenseman. He was kind of uh, having trouble passing the puck and, uh, killer was kind of you know what the heck's going on here and between periods he came in and the kid was sitting there and he's like oh my god what's gonna happen now killer went over to him maybe this will help he put his left hand glove on the right he put his right hand glove on the left and the kid sit there and brian left the room so we're all in the room watching this poor young kid he's got them both on now the decision is do i go out like this or do i change them like he's not quite sure what to do so he actually got out to the hallway before we said, don't worry about it. You can put your gloves on properly. <laughs> but I think if we wouldn't have said anything, you might've got on the ice like that. But I mean, it was a, it was a funny way and we could all laugh about it. And he kind of really got the message. As it would come to pass, Peter, you, you replaced, you took over for Brian Kilray as the coach of the Ottawa 67s. What was that like knowing the legend that you were stepping in behind the bench for? I mean, I was very young at that time, but I think, uh, you know, I had a lot of things to learn and I had the opportunity with Brian. I always call it the University of Brian Kilroy. You know, I was able to see him. I actually got a chance to be assistant with him. You know, how he worked behind the bench, tried to understand. And there was always that phase when you played and then you get behind the bench. And uh, it was kind of early in my career and I just finished playing and I was trying to understand, you know, the coach to player relationship in comparison to the player to coach relationship. And, uh, you know, I look back and I, I, you know, you pick up a lot of things, you know, he, the way he taught the game was very simple. He wasn't complicated. He uh, was pretty straightforward to the guys and, uh, and the humor part and the way of bringing it over, it uh, definitely left an impression on me. I really like the glove story because when we had killer on, he told us a few of his uh, ways of finding humor to get things out of players. And man, he had some killer ones, pun intended. Um, one of my, if you can bear with me for a second, one of my favorite books I ever read was they call me killer, which was killer's book. And in it, I recognize the cigar. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. I can I'm sure. Smell it from here. Yeah. PTSD, right? <laughs> I just want to, he has a paragraph here about you. He said, he tried everything to get better. He would glue two pucks together to strengthen his shot, but they actually kept splitting. So we had to buy him those rusty and weighted pucks. He'd fire them for hours. 
He was the first one on the ice and wouldn't get off until after seven. The trainers were actually getting mad at him. They wanted to lock up and leave, but they were always waiting for Peter. Where did that work ethic come from? You know, I, I mean, I wasn't the biggest hockey, hockey player, biggest player, uh, uh, hockey player at the time. And, uh, you know, to make a, to get noticed or to even get recognized, I think you had to try to, whether it was fitness, whether, you know, you had to do everything uh, two times better than the bigger guy. I mean, obviously the rules were a little bit different. And uh, so you had to, you know, impress, you had to really impress. I mean, like you said, with 81 goals, if you score 40 or 50, you know, he's a small guy at 81, maybe he can do it. And, uh, you know, so I just, I wanted to be in the, you know, get a chance to play in the NHL. And I just tried to do everything and anything I could to get there. And Killer would help out in every way also. So <laughs> you, you mentioned that uh, cigar look. And legend as is his fondness for Ann Murray music. Uh, anything else that was like completely associated with Brian Kilray? Well, uh, uh, it took me a couple of years to uh, get over Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, he loved this Kentucky Fried Chicken, and uh, we may have had forty trips and forty Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> so it took me. Now we got one here in Berlin. I actually go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, but it took me a couple of years to get over that Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> that's awesome Corey Locke told us that his billet parents used to, or sent him on the first bus trip with a blanket because the rookies sit up front and all that cigar smoke you just saw that cigar and you made sure to mention it how tough were those bus trips I mean I mean I did it as a player and I did it uh, helping as a coach and uh, you knew uh, him uh, he was either uh, you know at the front he was you know uh had his cigar on, but uh, thinking about the game, thinking about, uh, you know, what went right, what went wrong. And uh, if we lost, she didn't go up there and, uh, and talk to him. <laughs> Unless she called you up there and wanted to talk to you about something. So, nay, he was pretty, uh, you know, he loved to talk about the game. And uh, he always talked with his assistants about what went well, what didn't get him go well. And uh, I remember one young kid, Actually, a young goalie his first year and just come off a 7 1 loss on the road and come up to the front of the bus. And I, you know, he kind of wants the coach to kind of figure out what, you know, what went right or wrong. And I guess Brian could have blew up at him and he wasn't in a good mood. We'd lost 7 1. And the uh, young goalie came up and asked him, What do you think I should have done better? <laughs> and Kelly just looked at him and said, You shouldn't have got dressed. <laughs> And that was kind of without yelling or screaming, that kind of shut the story down. And uh, so, but he was very passionate about it. So you had to pick your times when to go ask him a question. Obviously, Peter, you don't score 81 goals without people taking notice. And I, I suspect that meant you were a, a marked man when you were playing in an opponent's building. Uh, what was one of the toughest? Do you remember any particular rough rides that you got during that season? Oh, I had some, uh, uh, you know, I remember Al Secor was, you know, he was always kind of hard on me and, uh, you know, he was a pretty, pretty strong. He had a great career in the NHL also, and, uh, he could play a pretty tough, hard game. But he used to give it to me in Hamilton and, uh, I was, it was tough. And, uh, but I, 
you know, I keep coming back, keep coming back. And it's funny, years later, we kind of met, a, met in a bar and having a beer together because Dougie was in Chicago. Actually, he was in Chicago. And uh, I kind of asked him, you know, what was, you know, I know you had to come after me, but it was kind of like overdone. And he's like, well, my mom said, why can't you score goals like that, Peter Lee? <laughs> so I, I kind of got a little extra from him. But, uh, you know, it's kind of funny when you talk to, to players over a beer over the years. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, I had defensemen playing for, I had, you know, we had our line had three defense. I mean, it was really weird. We'd have two defensemen on the blue line, two defensemen on each wing. And uh, we were basically playing against the centermen and 4D. So they tried everything, but, you know, I was lucky. I had a good, good sentiment and some good teammates that eventually I'd get the puck. Two years later, after that 81 goal season, you're playing in Nova Scotia in the American league. Meanwhile, back in the OHL, all the talk is about this young kid who wears 99, who apparently is supposed to be pretty good at hockey. He only gets 70. Oh, we lost Peter. Farzi? There's Farzi, no Peter. We lost him too? Yeah. I think when it kicked you out, I don't know, maybe when you, because you were a host or. Still says three participants. Pop them back in here. Sorry, guys. I think Corona hit my phone. <laughs> no, that's all right. We know it's Farzy too. Yeah, we both went out at the same time. <laughs> What's going on? All right, we'll pick up where we left off. <laughs> Two years after that 81 goal season, Peter, you're playing in Nova Scotia in the American League. Meanwhile, back in the OHL, <clears throat> excuse me, there's all this talk about this young kid coming into the league wearing 99, and apparently he was pretty good at hockey, but he only uh, managed to score 70 <laughs> that year. Were you like, what's all the talk about this kid? I had 11 more than him. You know, it was kind of exciting to see Wayne. I mean, if you talk about not the perfect shaped hockey player uh, and a guy with unbelievable hockey sense and unbelievable, you know, uh, uh, athlete and uh, for me it was like wow you know they're taken aware of a guy that can do stuff with the puck and and not just how big he is or what he can do I mean they had a lot of question marks but it was pretty exciting to see him play and you know you heard a lot about him and you knew he was going to be be something special in our league what was it like playing against him for as long as you did in the National Hockey League oh I mean uh uh, I was in Pittsburgh uh, and he was in uh, Edmonton and uh, yeah, we kind of got the defense assignment against his line and uh, we were lucky to, to keep him to, I think it was an assist, but I have to admit he must've had like three posts and his wingers. had. I mean, I think our goalie saved us more than we checked him, <laughs> and uh, we kind of got the, the assignment was like the coach said, Oh, we found this good checking line now. And uh, so then uh, we got the opportunity to, 
do the same job at Edmonton uh, a week later. And uh, I can't say it was successful, <laughs> but then there's a lot of lines that didn't have success. Yeah. If you were on the checking line, you'd never wanted to play Edmonton. Cause you're like, even if they get three against us, I guess that's a pretty good night. <laughs> I mean, I learned that in Montreal because uh, I remember the Montreal's first training camp it was kind of like Nova Scotia against the the Canadians. That was kind of like the preseason about three or three weeks before camp. And we had the Jimmy Roberts line, the checking line. They stayed in our end the whole time, but they never scored. But the other line played against Lafleur and Lemaire. They stayed in their end and they did score. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Checking lines are a little different. Well, speaking of that, I was curious because a guy that scores as much as you did, obviously, in junior, and you had a couple of 30-plus goal seasons even in the National Hockey League, but you're you're given that assignment as the center on the checking line or on that checking line. What's that yeah. like for you? You know, I mean, in the NHL, you, you want to do anything and everything to, you know, they were trying to figure out, do we put a top offensive line? You know, they – I mean, no one solved the problem of Wayne Gretzky or how you how you can keep them under under control. So everybody tried everything, and it happened to be. I mean, it wasn't an insult to be playing against the best. I mean, whatever role you had, and uh, yeah, you know, other nights we weren't checking, but you know, kind of that one night where we got the opportunity to try to shut them down. I mean, you don't go up and say, okay, you guys try to outscore him. It was more like try to stop them, and hopefully you come out plus minus zero. It's a bonus if you get one against them. You, uh, a couple years after being drafted, or a little while after being drafted, you were traded to Pittsburgh from Montreal in a weird trade for Peters. Exactly. <laughs> all, all four players. <laughs> yeah. were you, what was your thought process when you were traded to Pittsburgh? Well, I was in uh, Nova Scotia at the time. Uh, I went to practice that morning and they basically told me not to go on the ice. So I kind of knew something was coming up. And uh, yeah, Al McNeil was the coach down there and came to me after practice and said, uh, it's kind of weird. He says, uh, actually, he complimented me. He'd been the hardest son of a gun in Nova Scotia. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm traded and he's saying these great things about, you know, how I've developed and what I do well and, it was kind of nice to see and uh, says, yeah, you just got traded to Pittsburgh. You're playing in Montreal tomorrow. They want you up there. So then of course I obviously found out it was a Peter, Peter, Peter <laughs> trade. So and then everyone asked me, who would you get traded for? I said, Peter, Peter, everybody, <laughs> Peter. And who else came in to trade? Peter. <laughs> Anybody else involved? Yeah. Peter. And they all looked at me, what are you talking about? So that first game as a Penguin was against the Habs? Yep. It was, uh, you know, playing in the Montreal form is very special. And, uh, you know, just going out for a warm-up, it was like to have your first game in the NHL in the form. <coughs> one, you know, one of the more dominating teams, obviously, uh, in the history of hockey, the Montreal Canadiens of those at that time. You know, they'd won a few Stanley Cups. We're on the way to win another one. You know, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty exciting. Peter, in doing some prep for this interview, just cruising around hockey DB and diving into a wormhole, <laughs> holy cow. <laughs> um, just look different players and stuff. 
I found one player that popped up on almost every team you played for, it seemed like, was Rod Shutt. You were taking a pick before him in the 76 NHL draft, and then you both end up playing on multiple teams together. What was he like? You know, he was uh, obviously a, a player that was was not as big as I was, kind of the same type of – he was a goal-getter that, uh, you know, liked to score goals. He, you know, go-to-the-net type of guy and uh, – you know, when I turned 26, 27, it's kind of weird. You were, it's a little bit different NHL in those days. There was really no, no uh, movement. Uh, you couldn't just kind of say, okay, you don't want me. I'll go somewhere else. I'm a free agent or wherever it is. Um, we both got, uh, had to go to arbitration if we wanted to resign. And uh, I choose to go to Europe. I said, it was kind of weird to come to Europe. You're a free agent. You can go anywhere you want in Europe. It's, it was kind of weird. It was like being let out of jail. But, you know, the unfortunate part, you weren't in the NHL. And Rod, you know, chose to do uh, arbitration. And they're never pretty. I mean, if you end up winning, you end up losing, you know. so. And I didn't think, you know, I controlled too much if I got into that fight. And uh, I would have, you know, rather have got traded if I could have. But, uh, nah. And then I got the opportunity to come to Europe, so I can't complain. I went, came over in 82 and 2021, and I'm still here. Good, <laughs> good guy off the ice, too? Yeah, he was. He, uh, you know, it was kind of funny. He liked the fur jackets in those days, kind of looked uh, a little different. I was kind of more leather, and he was more fur. But, yeah, he was a pretty good guy, pretty good teammate, too. What was life like as a professional hockey player in the National Hockey League back around? Hey, Peter, and obviously these are multi-multi-millionaires. The money wasn't quite as big when you were in the league. What was it like being a pro hockey player? I mean, uh, you know, you were excited to get to NHL. I mean, uh, yeah, today they have a lot of uh, a lot more. Uh, uh, it's a little bit different. Obviously, they're on private, you know, on charters. Uh, you know, they're in five-star hotels. But as far as is in those days, they still treated us well. We were on commercial flights. Um, we stayed at the most, you know, pretty decent hotel. Didn't have to be a five-star, but they were always really good hotels and either close to the rink that you get in and out quick. And uh, flying, obviously flying uh, normal uh, normal flights, uh, you obviously stayed around in towns a lot more than you do now. Like they charter in and out of towns. You know, we went out to LA, we stayed there for a few days. Uh, we went up to Vancouver, we'd stay there because you're always catching commercial flights everywhere. So there's not the rush to get out right after a game. So you got to see a few uh, highlights in every city. How difficult was you to, or was it for you to play under Eddie Johnstone? Well, I mean, Eddie was pretty, pretty simple guy. And, uh, you know, he gave me my opportunity. I think I just got kind of caught when I got there. They had a kind of an older team. Uh, when I got there at 21, in fact, I think I was rookie of the year. My first year, I was the only rookie. So it was pretty easy to win. And, uh, you know, then obviously I got a, a couple of okay years where I thought I got an opportunity to play. And then the one thing that the Edmonton Oilers kind of brought into the league is, uh, you know, young players. They had some, <clears throat> obviously some of the best young players. So you saw teams looking at, okay, now we got to get young. 
you know, I was turning 26, 27, and all of a sudden they said, you know, we got to get young. And I think I just got, happened to be at the wrong end of the, you know, when they were an older established team, I was the younger. And when they were kind of going to go younger, I was kind of the, I mean, it's not old, but I was 26, 27. So I just got caught in the wrong. It would have been nice if you could have moved uh, within the league. You know, it's, I think they protected me till I was 36. So I wasn't able to move even when I went over to Europe. So what was it like for you kind of uh, restarting a career in Europe, playing a completely different brand of hockey, obviously? Yeah, I mean, uh, I came to Dusseldorf. I didn't know what to actually. I thought I was going to come over for a year or two. Uh, I didn't realize that they could protect your rights so long. I thought maybe, you know, I could kind of come over, uh, get an opportunity to, you know, get a chance to play somewhere else in the NHL if I played well over in Europe. But uh, obviously the rules were a little bit different. If you went to Europe, they kept your rights and ended up keeping them, like I said, till I was about 36. So, you know, but I got an opportunity in Dusseldorf. I'd heard about it being an unbelievable hockey town. Uh, I think Team Canada had been in there the year before and they don't, everybody talked about how their fans are and, uh, it's just unbelievable. And I got the opportunity to go there and they were right. It was a hockey town. They were, you know, one of the few German cities where at that time hockey was number one and not soccer. And, uh, you know, I was there 10 years and the last four, we won four championships in a row. And I think, uh, don't know, there was a better place to be to play hockey when you're winning like that. If we can go back to Pittsburgh for just a moment, one of the goalies you had was an arch nemesis in Peterborough and Greg Millen. How, what was it like being on the same team as a guy that you used to try to score? Well, I'm sure you scored a couple of your 81 on him at some point. <laughs> Actually, he was, uh, you know, he came in as a underdog to our team and I kind of had a lot of respect for him in, in, in Peterborough and I knew he had talent and he could be, but he was, he was coming in near the end of the older group and they were thinking of moving to the younger. So he came as a cocky, pretty well-spoken I mean, you had to be if you want to, you know, if, if you weren't your biggest fan, no one else was going to sit there and say, Greg Millen, you're coming up for sure. You're the best. No one was, and he had an attitude and I must say he worked hard and uh, eventually won, uh, you know, the number one position. And uh, <laughs> he, he was uh, a lot of fun. You mentioned, Peter, you go over to Europe and, 81, 82, and, and here you are still there in 2021, all these years later. Uh, what kept you there? I mean, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to play here, obviously, for 10 years. Uh, got to know the game over here. Uh, I went back uh, uh, for a year, two years, actually, with uh, worked with Brian, got the opportunity to work with Brian, get my coaching certificates and everything. So I took uh, two years off in Europe here. I actually came back to Europe and played. Uh, and then obviously with the, because I was familiar now that I'd spent 10 years in Europe, I was familiar with the European game. So I got the opportunity to get into the coaching side. And uh, yeah, and coaching, assistant coach went to coach, coach went to manager, manager went to CEO. And uh, yeah, free, the time went pretty fast. I think the only job left for me now is Zamboni driver. Then I've got it all over here. <laughs> what was the, the process like when you first decided to go overseas? I'm sure it's a little different than it is now. 
Well, it's kind of weird because you're trying to, uh, you know, you're 26, 27, and uh, there's no, it doesn't look like you can get out of Pittsburgh. They're going youth. You have, you don't know if you're going to be in the American League or you're going to be in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, you might, you have to go to arbitration to settle your contract. You know, there was kind of on the border the year before, there was just so many negative things about, you know, going back to Pittsburgh and then all of a sudden you look in Europe, uh, uh, the money was pretty good. Uh, it wasn't NHL, but it wasn't minor league. And, uh, you know, you could choose wherever you went and everyone was bending over backwards to get you. And uh, it seemed like, you know, to go somewhere where, you know, you felt wanted and you hoped that you could build something long-term or get an opportunity to come back if, uh, if it opened up. So, I'm not quite sure. It was you know most people would have said you should have gone to arbitration. You know I was lucky. I played over 400 games in the NHL. I can't complain. Would have been nice if I got the opportunity to come back, but I did get play in the NHL, and I uh, must say I came to Europe and enjoyed it also, and it's been an unbelievable experience. If I can just follow up real quick, Farzi. I'm looking back at it. You mentioned the 400 games in Europe, 340 goals. I think I read looking at the, some of the people that were still in the league while you were or still in the national league while you were in Europe now at this point in your life, do you ever look back and wish that you would have went to arbitration? No, I try to figure out the only thing I ever try to figure out is at 26, would I have been a free agent in today's game? <laughs> That's the kind of, you know, in today's game, I probably wouldn't uh, even come over, but who made it or didn't I mean, really I had, a lot of players went over to Europe and you have to be open to the experience and that, you know, when we recruit players over here, we're not bringing you over to, 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 you know, retire. We, you know, they're, they love their hockey over here. They're very engaged fans. It's a little bit different than back home. It's, uh, you know, the fans are singing, the fans are, you know, so you're coming over to play pretty exciting hockey. It may not be the NHL, but uh, the, the fans are, they live and die hockey here when you, and, and so when you come, so I never went over with a chip on my shoulders. I appreciate it. You know, if I hadn't had the opportunity to go Europe, who knows, I might've played one more year. I might've played five, who knows how many more years I would have played in the NHL, but it gave me an opportunity to, you know, great city in Dusseldorf. It was a great fan base. We were sold out every night with 11,000 fans. Uh, they had the, 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 the little candles always lit every game. I mean, you had 10,000 candles on when you came out. We was like, we got to the games at six 30. They were already drinking beer and singing songs. And uh, I mean, I get there at six 30, usually, you know, all stadiums I've ever been in, they've been empty. You walk in at six 30 and the stadium is full and they're drinking beer and singing songs. You haven't even started the game yet. So, I mean, I got a lot of opportunities and, you know, you got to be open to, it's a new culture. It's different. And uh, I think the first time I went to the, to the meat shop, I tried to get five slices of ham and I think I got five kilos. So <laughs> it, there's a different lifestyle. It's not a hot dog. It's a sausage here. So you get a bratwurst, not a hot dog, but there's some great bratwurst. Some good beers over there too. Yes, sir. Every area has its own beer. It's unbelievable. I mean, you can't even pick one beer. When you reflect, Peter, on this lifetime in hockey, and it, it's one that continues, obviously, 
what what stands out for you as highlight moments? That first junior goal, the 81st, the first pro goal, an arena you played in. And what, what comes to your mind? I mean, you have a lot. It's like when you go on a, I call it, you know, when you go on a holiday and you see different things along the way. I mean, this holiday has been, you know, since I can remember when I started junior, even back to peewee, you know, just in uh, going to the Quebec peewee tournament, you know, it's like being on a, you know, 50 year holiday with all kinds of highlights along the way. You know, I've been to two Olympics with the Swiss national team as assistant coach. You know, we won uh, eight championships here in Berlin. We won four championships in, uh, in Dusseldorf, uh, even in Halifax, we got an American league. So there's, you know, so many highlights. I mean, unbelievable time. Some, unfortunately didn't get to get a Memorial cup, but some great playoffs and uh, obviously some great memories and, in junior. So I'm kind of lucky the holiday has been a long one and uh, been a lot to look back on. Your father went to the Olympics with England in 48. You go to the Olympics in 06. Did it mean something special going to the Olympics after your father had been there? Yeah, it's kind of funny because when we grew up in Arvada, like I said, there was only snow, no grass. My father really didn't talk about uh, his soccer career. And uh, in England, they have like the hats you have on. They have like they give you a, a, every game you play. And I remember digging them up uh, from my dad and we used to play baseball with them. We didn't know they're like valuable. I mean, you put them on eBay today, you'd get thousands of dollars for them. And we used to wear them. And my grandmother, one time we came over to, for one summer semester, we were at my grandmother's in Chester, England. And there's where we kind of read about, uh, you know, where he was, uh, he played the Olympics. She actually got his Olympic pass out and it was like, wow. And then, yeah, as a, as a, I didn't get to do it as a player, but I got to do it as a coach. Unbelievable. I mean, a world championship. I did those two Olympics is a, just another level of an experience simply because you're with best out. I mean, you're sitting there and Sidney Crosby's having a coffee at that cafe. They're all the best athletes in every sport. You know, they're all together and it was pretty amazing. As, real quick, as a coach in during that Olympics, Crosby's sitting there having a coffee. Did you ever just walk by and go, 81? <laughs> <laughs> right, I 81. did that. I did, you know how you 81, 81. Yeah. No, he's, uh, you know, it's just kind of, you just got to see what kind of coffee is he drinking. What is it? Is he taking it? Is there anything else included there? Yeah, what's in that coffee? I want some. <laughs> but he looked even focused, uh, you know. I got to do the Vancouver Olympics, which were pretty exciting, obviously. And, uh, you know, to see those, those players and what they went through. And, uh, wow. It was pretty fun. Vancouver was unbelievable because you actually, winter Olympics are not easy because you're always in, you know, somewhere up in the mountains and not usually big cities. I think Vancouver was kind of the first big city that had a winter Olympics. Like summer Olympics are easy. You can do them almost in any big city, LA, wherever you want, but you never see a New York city or in LA for a winter Olympics, that type of, you know, or London, very difficult to see. So Vancouver is one of the bigger cities where they had an Olympics and wow, was it uh, hockey crazy. You mentioned earlier how as a CEO now with Ice Baron, it's, it's a 12 month a year job. It's, it's round the clock, around the year. What, what still puts the fire in the belly, Peter? I know you described this as a 50 year holiday, but, you know, still in the game all these years later, what motivates you? I think it's, you know, you just, you know, you're doing basically what was, 
was was a you know as you i remember sitting with my dad in front of the tv and like uh they get their sticks for free they get to get you know like you're just like overwhelmed with everything and i think i've been lucky that that the hockey's been able to uh to give me some great experiences and allow me to stay in the game in different functions. And uh, yeah, you just have a unbelievable burning love for the game and uh, you never seems to get, but there's always something, I mean, just take Corona. I don't think anybody's been through anything like this. So it's been a challenge and there's no two days alike. So it's been a lot of fun. Before we started recording here, you talked about how your family's kind of spread out. PEI, Richmond, Virginia, you're over in Berlin. How tough is it as a father to be that far away? The toughest has been, uh, actually my one son was here in Berlin. He's now, he moved back to PEI and, uh, I have some grandchildren here. Unfortunately, my, one of my other sons passed away, uh, four years ago and, uh, he was married to a German girl here. So I have three grandchildren that actually, uh, two of them play hockey. All three of them play hockey. One girls hockey and the other two are in our ice band program. So uh, the toughest part's been my, my son that lives in Richmond. Usually we're, you know, either we go over there, they come over here or both. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, we haven't been able to travel over there for two years. So it's been, I got a granddaughter there. So it's been tough that we haven't been able to get over and see them. Hopefully we will this summer maybe in the February break at the Olympic break, but that's been the toughest not actually being able to see them in the last two years. We saw them at least once or twice a year, either here or there. So that's been the toughest, but I'm pretty good at zoom now. I'm pretty zoomed in. I'll tell you, I'm an expert <laughs> now. Holy mackerel. Well, I, I got to say, Peter, your name is uh, obviously synonymous with the Ottawa 67s. I love this Ontario hockey league and, to get the chance to have this conversation about a guy who's even got a paragraph dedicated to him in, in Brian Kilray's book is, is pretty special to catch up. This is usually where Chris jumps in and says, I just have one more question, but I want you to know how much I certainly appreciate you making the time for us today. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I mean, you know, junior hockey is uh, quite the experience and I was lucky, you know, to have five years to actually played six with the junior B and have an opportunity with the 67s and, involved with some pretty good people there got me a good start to my hockey career and uh, very thankful for them and uh, yeah this is normally the time sorry this is normally the time I do chime in and say that I do have one more (laughs) I probably have two or three because we haven't heard a story about Randy Carlisle yet and I'm sure there's a couple good ones but I do want to go back to the Ottawa days yeah and I'm sure there's a couple good Carlisle stories yeah, but I don't think we can put them out. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I, I want to do go back to the 67s because your name, obviously, as Farwell said, it's synonymous with them. But you, we've talked about them before, but you can't bring up Ottawa without talking about killer. Every time we come up, it's the first name out of someone's mouth, I think. If you were to, if you were to meet someone the first time and they, they knew killer and they said, oh, what's a good killer? What's your killer story? I feel like everyone has a killer story that is a go-to. Do you have a go-to killer story? And does it involve going high off the glass in the defensive zone? No, I mean, there's so many killer stories. I mean, I, I'm not sure which ones have been heard. I mean, the toughest part is you're not quite sure which ones have been heard and which ones new. I mean, we had Sean Donovan, an unbelievable skater. I'm sure everyone's heard that one. 
you know, he was an unbelievable skater, great hockey player, you know, I played in the NHL, but uh, unfortunately one night he's like, the puck's going one way and he's flying the other way. And finally, after the period, you know, we're down one or two, nothing. And he comes in and he goes, tell me, Donald, are you playing right wing for us or left wing for them? You know, and there's stuff like that. Like he was, there's so many key, you know, you're not quite sure which ones I heard of where it was with, uh, with team Canada where, you know, he got an opportunity to work with, uh, with the, uh, with the world juniors and, you know, in those days it was pretty, they were getting, you know, the team Canada programs were pretty, uh, pretty intense stuff. And, uh, they had the old question. I remember he was as, uh, as the national coach and they kind of asked him, you know, uh, uh, asked the national coach, uh, you know, how do you treat your, you know, like, how do you, you know, suggest Brian, you know, figure out which third goalie to take, which three goalies he should take to the world juniors. And, uh, the national coach kind of went, well, you know, I want one number one to feel like number one and number two feel like that maybe be number one. But then if one of those one or two got hurt, I'd want number three, not to think he's number three, that maybe he's a number one, or maybe he'll have to be a number two, but even though he's number three, and it took about five minutes to get through. And they finally asked killer. They said, killer, uh, how are you going to choose your goal? He says, well, I'm going to check and uh, whoever I see is number one, I'm going to tell him he's number one. I'll ask the other two who wants to be number two. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty simple. So, I, I mean, it. There, it goes on and on. And you never quite, what's interesting, there's always a new one. You know, somebody's always got a special one they remember. And you go, oh, yeah, I forgot that one. So, I mean, there's a book full of them. I think Killer told us the Sean Donovan story himself. Yeah, there's a book. There's a book for them. <laughs> That's got to be in the book. It's got to be. It is. But, yeah, we heard uh, that one from Killer too. Yeah, he's. Uh, there's some. I don't know if they did. He have the goalie one in there. No, that one wasn't in there. No. no probably didn't want to uh, insult Team Canada. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not to be because they had that. Did they have the front door, back door uh, one in there also? I don't know. Which, another one of those questions. They asked the uh, the uh, national coach, and I guess same thing. It was kind of like, uh, where do you want your D to be when they're coming, you know, coming towards the net? And he was saying, well, I want them on the left post, but I want to make sure, you know, the back door is not open and they can't come. Uh, uh, so I'm really being careful not to uh, give my space away and went on for five minutes again. And then they asked Killer, so what do you think? He says, well, I'd take a look at it. I'm not quite sure about, about the back door. I just want to make sure the front door isn't wide open. (laughs) (laughs) You know, stuff like that. I'm sure there's a thousand more, but yeah, great man. And like I said, he brought humor to the game. And I think that's, you know, if you're going to be, you know, you don't want to be spiteful to kids. You want to kind of give them that motivation push. And I think if you can get a bit of humor in it, then it softens the, what, you know, you have to, you know, we, we as athletes are pushed to be our best we can. And, uh, you know, you have to find a way. And I think he found it with humor and he kind of kept the group loose and didn't, you know, we were really all oh, that poor kid or anything. We're, you know, kind of laughing as a group and you'd kind of bring the kid along too. And he'd kind of, at the end of the day, laugh about it, but he'd got the point. And lastly, far as this, my last one, I promise, but Doug Wilson just went into the hall of fame. Did you uh, reach out? Did you talk to him at all? Or what, were, what did you think when you saw your former teammate going to the hall? 
unbelievable. I mean, he's had a great career uh, when, you know, he went into Chicago and, uh, you know, the things he, I mean, not just as a hockey player, kind of like myself, he got the chance to work in management. He's done an unbelievable job. Of course, uh, congratulations were out to him and uh, he earned it and had a great career. And it's always fun to see these guys, you know, kind of go to the Hall of Fame and, uh, you know, kind of go over the careers they've had and what they've done. And they've been, uh, I mean, Dougie's an unbelievable person and, and not just a hockey player, too. So it's good to see good people go there. Yeah, we, we just want to say thanks again for coming on. This is awesome. Every time we're in Ottawa, your name comes up one way or another, especially when we see those banners. Farzi always... 81 Popper. Can you believe that? 81. <laughs> there was a few empty numbers. They all count. They, at the end, they don't ask how. They just ask how many. Yeah, I think if I played with McDavid, I could score 95. <laughs> I could score 95. You, but, I'm 66, but I'm 66. But I'm 66. I think Gordy used that one. Oh, that's great. Peter, thanks a million for making the time for us. It's been great. Nick? Nay, thank you very much. Uh, hopefully, uh, we covered everything you wanted. And uh, just another, uh, just a short note. And uh, somebody that uh, uh, I had to uh, help me in junior and uh, eventually came over here and won three championships. Actually, he coached in Peterborough also. Uh, Vince Millette, uh, unfortunately, you know, he got uh, diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer, but you know, a tremendous career he had in, in Peterborough and Ottawa, obviously won a Memorial Cup. And uh, he uh, came over to Berlin here, won three championships. And uh, yeah, just wanted to say hi to Vince and uh, all the well, what a family they have. And they've done a lot. And somebody that uh, really touched me talking about the OHL and uh, yeah, big hello out there to Vince. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Great guy. Great family for sure. Thanks again for that, Peter. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.